our speaker this morning and his vocabulary needs no introduction, but it is a great pleasure and with a real appreciation that, that Don Carson is coming to join us uh, here as a part of a very busy week with the national training event as well. And so I'd, I'd like you to make, make Don feel welcome and I'll invite you up. A few questions, if I may. Uh, we're, we're interested in planting churches and value uh, the, the local church and know that you travel a lot and we'll be interested to hear how do you find home church and spiritual nurture while being on the road and being uh, an academic and therefore maybe frightening to local pastors and how does that work out in your spiritual life? It's called the gift of intimidation. <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm away from our own local church so much that I'm, uh, I'm not really in formal leadership there. They, asked me regularly to join the pastoral staff part-time, but I'm, I'm away so often that it just wouldn't be fair. But behind the scenes, I'm regularly meeting with pastors over breakfast and talking to particular people and, and things like that. And, um, and, and so uh, some, of, some of my own uh, closer spiritual accountability links are actually with other senior pastors in the Gospel Coalition and things like that. Um, I, I don't. I don't. There's no magic formula. I am. My ministry is odd in that it yep. is. It is so peripatetic. It's. I'm on, I'm on the road so much. I'm away so much of the time. What can I say? And and so, um, uh, it's, it's not something I'd recommend. Sure. Uh, sure. Sure. It's just good to hear, though, that those those things are still needs that are found in a variety of ways. Sure. And I suppose that's the. Uh, in your travels, you do see uh, a range of, of church planting initiatives, ranging from within denominations to right on the, the pioneer of missionary work. Are there th things that particularly surprise or excite you as you as you travel and hear about uh, church planting that t takes place around the world? The models are so diverse that there's not sort of one model that is winning everything or something like that. And moreover, the fruitfulness is hugely varied as well. Um, do you really want to conclude that the missionaries that went to what is now South Korea 125 years ago were all a whole lot more godly than the missionaries that went to Japan 125 years ago? Well, the fact of the matter is um, church growth, church planting and the like in, in Japan is, is uh, horribly slow. And in terms of gross statistics, the church, which on the most generous reading is something under half of 1%, that's on the most generous reading, is actually declining in numbers um, over against figures in South Korea where uh, they're, they're just massively different. Probably a third of the population is Christian in some sense in, in, in South Korea. And, and, and so what are you going to say? Uh, um, they got their methods right in one place and they didn't get their methods right in another place? Uh, so you still have to keep remembering that the Lord is the Lord of the harvest and, and uh, the Lord adds to the church those who are being saved and there is some sovereignty and mysteriousness and providence and all of this that, that is really important. Having said that, I start off by saying beware of generalizations and I'm going to make one. Um, <laughs> I am more encouraged today by what I see going on in quite a lot of corners of the world than I was 10 years ago. Um, there are lots of challenges. There always are, um, but this coming April we'll have a meeting of the Gospel Coalition. Will be between eight and ten thousand people, and um, eighty to eighty-five percent will be under the age of forty-five. And that's not just us. 
you know, T4G is somewhat similar and so on. And it's not just the US. Um, I was in Brazil recently in a conference there that I've known about, attended, been part of occasionally over the last two or three decades. Uh, suddenly the numbers are big and young. And Britain, it's much slower, it's much smaller, but um, the gospel partnerships are just hugely encouraging. They're, they're small, but they're beginning to grow and they're attracting young men who want to plant churches. And um, uh, I've been teaching long enough to know that, that there are generations of students. You get students coming in, everybody wants to sort of be Toronto Blessing, and then you get another generation of students in there, everybody wants to be Calvin. And, and, and it, 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 they, they come in in waves, you know? Fifteen years ago, they were, they were coming in from the emerging church movement, and they were basically telling us old duffers to shove over because we didn't know what we were talking about. And, and the current generation is looking to be mentored. John, Woodbr John Piper and I look at each other and say, hey, it's a great time to be 60. Um, <laughs> it's bizarre. I mean, 30-year-olds actually want to listen to me. I, mean, I, I really do find it very hard to believe. <laughs> and and, and, um, and so, so there is something going on, and it's in quite a lot of countries, and not just in the West. The most conservative estimates are um, a million Christians in Iran. The most conservative estimates. And, and um, um, I... I there's a new, younger generation coming along, wanting to be mentored, wanting to get the gospel right, wanting to plant churches, and it's in a lot of different corners of the world. And I, I, don't, I don't want to be naive and, and be optimistic, and it can all fall apart, and sin can destroy a lot, and who knows what the future holds, and all of that. But uh, you, you just have to keep remembering that, that, that Christ said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And when things look bleak on so many fronts, God has a sense of humor and says, watch, I'll do it again. And, and he raises up another generation, you know? So I, I, this is not the time to be discouraged as far as I'm concerned. It's, it's time to thank God and press on. Terrific. Uh, we've, we've asked and invited you to speak on the topic of lessons from French-Canadian revival. I, I'm not sure if French-Canadian is the right word for, from the French-Canadian's point of view, but uh, I heard a tape, uh, remember tapes, um, of you speaking about this and, and thought it was interesting both because it was so unusual and again reminds us of what God can do, um, uh, but also in that whole process, reflecting on what can be imitated, can't be imitated, all of these things, we, we look forward to hearing from you. So uh, I hand over to you. Thank you very much. Now, if I were going to talk to you uh, directly about uh, church planting as, as I see it today, I, I probably wouldn't take this approach right away. In, in other words, uh, uh, I, I would start from the Bible and work out from there and... Uh, relate a number of, of stories and, and so on from different corners of the world. But my brief this time is to tell you something of my experience of church planting in French Canada. Um, I've been involved in three church plants myself, and one was in French Canada, two were in English Canada. I'll tell you my own brief experience in a few moments. But to understand what happened there, uh, you really have to learn some history. So. For those of you who hate history, uh, sorry, this is your time to tune out if you like, but I just have to fill in the history to make sense of, 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 of what happened at all. Uh, the country that became Canada uh, was first settled by the French, not by the Brits. And um, they were a fur trapping uh, society that actually got on with the Indians pretty well. They were called coureurs de bois, runners of the wood. And they settled down the St. Lawrence, which is the great entrance into the Great Lakes, 
You know, they settled in what is now Quebec and Ontario, and then they jumped from the Great Lakes to the Mississippi and went all the way down the Mississippi to New Orleans. That's why there's still so much French today in New New, or New Orleans. You, you, you see, it's a it's it's what's called Cajun French, Cajun from Canadian. So, so there is this link all around the, the, what became the New England states. And in the War of 1812-1814, um, one of the causes of it was that, that the American 13 colonies were feeling trapped on the coast because they were encircled all around behind by the French, do, 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 do you see? But eventually Canada became British in the Treaty of Versailles in 1763. There's a, a long story that I'll spare you. Canada did not actually become a nation with its own parliament and more or less independent of Westminster, save for the need to have things signed into law by the uh, governor general, a, a pattern not entirely unknown here, um, until 1867. But when that happened, when Canada became the dominion of Canada from sea to sea in 1867, um, one of the ways that the country was kept together was by giving the individual provinces a lot of freedom. Otherwise, Quebec would not have joined because Quebec was still French and Catholic and a medieval sort of Catholic. And so the Catholic Church controlled the police forces there, they controlled the educational systems there, they, they controlled uh, the media there and so on. It was a, a, a very different world. It was much more like Italy or France before the French Revolution in 1789 uh, than, than it was like the rest of Canada, which was uh, English or German or Russian in terms of the immigrant patterns and, and diverse, some Catholic, some Protestant, some skeptical, some who knows what. It, it was, it, and eventually it just became indistinguishable religiously from, let's say, uh, uh, Sydney or Canberra. Um, but Quebec was different. Quebec had another language, another culture, and so on. And, um, <clears throat> And, and part of the, the differentiation um, was more complicated yet in that because it was priestly controlled, their university systems, their educational systems were constantly pushing Catholicism even at the expense of science and engineering and so on. So the English got the high level jobs and the French became the other workers, do, 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 do you see? So there, there, was, there, there was an underlying resentment and rebellion built up because they felt like uh, second or third rate citizens in the country. Um, the rest are Canadians, they're French Canadians. You see already, if you have to put a label in front of them, then, 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 then this is the background for uh, successive rounds of uh, separatism that sometimes uh, uh, emerge in the, uh, the, the, the country. Even the, the vocabulary is different. For example, in French, if you say nation, Nation, you don't mean quite the same thing. In the English-speaking world, nation conjures up nation-state. But nation has to do more with, it could be nation-state, but it has more to do with culture and race and self-identity. So Quebecers speak regularly of la nation, um, le peuple, the people. And, and that is heard in English ears as if they're claiming to be non-Canadians but another nation. Do you see? So you get these sorts of tensions all the time. Believe me, this is relevant to church planting. You just have to trust me for a minute. <laughs> now, in terms of the progress of the gospel, there was not much uh, for, for quite a long period of time. At the time of the American Revolution, um, there were thousands of Americans who didn't want to rebel against King George III, believe it or not, and they migrated north into Canada. Some of them went to English Canada, 
and they just eventually merged in the population. But those that, mer that went to, to French Canada, they brought their Protestantism. They, they, they brought their, in very many cases, evangelicalism, and they brought their names. But nevertheless, their numbers were so small with respect to the rest of the population that apart from little kernels of pockets, they eventually married into and were absorbed by the population. So you can go to towns of 30,000, 40,000, look up in the phone book and find names like Brown and Greenwood, where nobody in the town speaks a word of English. In other words, the, the names from the men have, have, have carried on, but the whole population has been submerged in Catholicism, in, in, um, in, in French, and, and so on. And then right in the middle of French Canada, a little town like Sawyerville, which, which was all populated initially by what we called UELs, United Empire Loyalists, who moved up at the time of the American Revolution, Re Revolution, started their own little village and town, basically kept the French out, and became a little English pocket right in the middle of French Canada. And they're still largely Protestant to this day. I mean, so, so there are all of these anomalies that are checkered through this whole, this whole area. So a city, a city like Montreal, just under 3 million, uh, about 15% of the population when I was growing up was a little less now was um, English speaking first, but they would mostly speak, but they would know how to speak French. And, and many of the French would know some English. But you go to Quebec City, I doubt you'd find 100 families that know how to speak English. So how French it is really depends on, 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 on where you are. Now, in this context, therefore, the impact of the UELs turned out to be very, very slight and ephemeral. In a century, it was all gone. But in the late 1800s, there was, um, a group of Baptists that um, formed what came to be called La Grande Ligne, the, grand, the, the, the Grand Line Mission. I mean, it doesn't make sense in English, but that's, that's, that's what it was called. And they planted about 70 churches up and down the whole St. Lawrence Valley. And uh, it was effective, it was quiet, it was slow, um, but it was discouraging in this respect. This too you have to understand. Um, because the priests control the educational system, um, all schools were supposed to be Catholic. But then you had to make some allowances under Dominion charters and so on for the Protestants. So there were two school boards, a Catholic school board and the Protestant school board. The Protestant school board was basically secular. The Catholic school board was everybody else. But the priests eventually controlled things so that if you were French, then you went to the Catholic schools. So if you started churches, therefore, in... in, in um, a French milieu, and then the kids were all brought up speaking French, and they became part of a Christian family from an evangelical perspective, then as soon as it was clear they weren't Catholics, they had to abandon the Catholic school. But the Protestants were only allowed English schools, which meant the kids had to go to an English school, which meant they became socialized in English, and thus you were always at a first-generation level of church planting. You could never have a second generation of French, educated French Christians because they, they became Anglicized. Did you see? It, it, it was a horrible situation in terms of church planning. You, you could never have a second generation French church. But the Grand Line Mission nevertheless planted a church in, in this kind of matrix. And then it was hit by classic liberalism from about 1920 on. And those 70 churches dwindled down to five. I mean, liberalism doesn't plant churches. Simple as that. And because you don't have any second generation Christians, they die fast. If you have second or third generation Christians and liberal, liberalism hits in, it can take a while for the liberalism to do a really massive damage 
if, if you have this kind of linguistic problem and then liberalism hits, there's nothing left. So 70 churches dissipated down to about five in about uh, 15 to 20 years. So that takes us to the mid-1930s, uh, uh, when my father and a chap from um, Switzerland, uh, who therefore had German and French and Italian under his belt, felt called of God to, to start up in French Canada. They were the first ones back. Uh, on the Baptist side. The only other evangelicals who were doing anything in French Canada were, were brethren, Plymouth Brethren. Uh, there was no other group doing anything in French Canada at the time. So the Plymouth Brethren were beginning to start up about the same time in the late 1930s. And um, my father didn't have the language. He, he, he started off having to learn the language uh, properly. I could tell you a lot of funny stories where he stuck his foot in his mouth massively. It's part of learning language. Some of you people might have had cross-cultural or missionary experience. Whenever you learn another language, uh, you, you stick your foot in your mouth. I mean, it's, it's part of the price of learning the language. And Dad did it. I'll tell you one story. Yeah? He was doing door-to-door -door work. By this time, he was getting reasonably okay. He could get by. And uh, just trying to get in to get, to get a Bible study going, a conversation going, it was really difficult. And on this particular door, step in Montreal. This would have been late 1930s. Um, uh, French Canadians were discouraged from having Bibles at all in their homes. And, and if they did have Bibles, they had to be approved by the Catholic Church. And, um, and he was standing in the door. He'd got, he was talking to this, this, this woman, um, and, and he'd forgotten his reading glasses. And he was trying to quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, but you, know, you don't just quote it. You've got to show people the text. So he's sort of trying to show her the text, and he couldn't his arms weren't long enough anymore. He, he couldn't quite find Ephesians, and he said, Ephesians, Ephesians. And, and suddenly, um, she saw it. It was flipping by. She didn't know how the Bible was put together, but she saw Ephesians. She stuck her finger in it, and he said, Ah, vous avez de beaux yeux, madame. Um, uh, beau as opposed to bon, just how nasal it is. And so instead of saying, Oh, you have good eyes, madam, he said, Oh, you have beautiful eyes, madam. And she kicked him out. I mean, um, the, the <laughs> I mean, those are the sorts of things that, um, that, that do happen when you're l l learning another language. So um, you, you are starting from nothing. I mean, you, you're not starting with a colonel or churches loaning you some people or you, you, you're trying to make friends with neighbors, uh, going from door to door, and, um, and that's the way the, the, the work started. And then uh, uh, gradually over the years, the churches grew uh, but as recently as 1972, um, the total number of French-speaking evangelical churches, they were all either Baptist or Brethren, um, in French Canada, and a population of about 6.5 million, so what, Sydney and Melbourne put together, something like that? The total number of churches was about 35 or 37. None with more than 50 people, 60 people, most with 20, 30 good Sunday 40. So it was very slow work. And during that time, between 1950 and, and 52, for example, Baptist ministers alone spent a total of eight years in jail. Um, the charge was always disturbing the peace or inciting to riot or disorderly conduct or whatever, but it was always for going door to door or passing out literature or it, it, it was an extremely hostile situation. And even in 1967, when I did a, a brief internship with another chap, um, he was an American missionary, he'd learned the language, and um, he had planted a church in Espestos d'Anville, and I, I went and spent four or five months with him. And, um, and 
we, we would go out to one of the nearby villages, going door to door, trying to pass out literature, trying to get somebody interested in a Bible study started or something. We, we, we'd go door to door. He'd go down one side of the street, and I'd go down the other side of the street. And then we'd come back in the, in the evening. Uh, I remember one evening we came in, and we'd switch back to English. And he said to me, I will never forget it. He said, Don, I've got to go back to French. I'm too tired to think in English. So here, here was a man who had so devoted himself to the people, it was more natural for him to speak in French at that point than, than, than English. But anyway, uh, we would not then go back to that village for at least a month or two. It was not safe to do so, even as recently as 67. That is, by the time you get back the next day, the local curé would have found out that you had been there, and he would have had the police or toughs around to beat you up and so on. So you just had to disappear for a month and then, and then go back and try again. So it was a very a different sort of hostile situation. In 1969, in Montreal, in an area called Ahuntsic, um, I... Um, I, I worked with another chap to start a church. It was in an area of about 126,000. We didn't know a single evangelical in this area, not one. I visited 3,000 homes door to door before I got my first Bible study going. Now, this is not the way I'd recommend you do church planting. I mean, but, I mean, what, what else were you supposed to do? Do, 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 you know, do you know? And during that time, we, 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 we that is, the, the leaders of this movement, I was just a kid for much of it, um, tried all kinds of things. Um, where they could, they would try to get on the radio, but often they were banned. Uh, there was one chap called Wilson Ewan, a missionary from the U.S., who was extremely bold and, <laughs> and adventuresome. He managed to get the address of every nun and priest and Catholic brother in the province, 20,000 of them, and, and raised the funds. And the, the pastors together wrote uh, an eight or ten page letter explaining it was respectful it, it was uh, it, it was courteous but it tried to explain what the gospel was quoting the bible using a catholic version and and and, and so on and inviting people to to talk and so on and meet up with us there was return address and all of this i mean i remember as a teenager you know stapling these things twenty thousand, you know and uh, and then stuffing envelopes we had whole teams doing it and eventually they were all mailed out and so on well the scandal lid blew up and uh, at, at that point, I mean, I remember one of our recent converts was a, uh, 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 he, he was a, 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 shoe, a shoe shop, he not only repaired shoes, but he actually made shoes in his shop. Uh, once it became clear that he was converted just about the same time, um, his business went down 90%, and then one night his uh, shop was torched. Uh, his life was repeatedly threatened. He and his wife left the province and went to Ontario. I mean, that was not uncommon in those days. And... Um, we kids were sometimes beaten up because we were modi protestant, damned Protestants. It never hurt us very much. It was probably much harder on our parents than it was on us. But, but that was part of the framework. And so uh, church planting was slow and difficult and challenging. And, uh, and, and most of the people that were converted were at the low end socioeconomically, which also meant that very few of them had potential for real leadership. Uh, theological training themselves, and where are you going to send them? There was no school to send them to unless they learned English. Uh, it's, it's, so suddenly you have all the multiplied problems of, 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 of uh, uh, evangelism and church planting in a, in a cross-cultural situation, and yet this in a major Western nation. But at the same time, the social pressures under the surface were perking, so that in... Um, at the same time that, that many Western nations were going through the dirty 60s in the U.S., Haight-Asbury and the, 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 the flower power and Vietnam War and all of that. Well, Canada wasn't in the Vietnam War, but the same sort of social pressures were going on. In French Canada, it was rebellion against the English. 
and there was the formation of what was called la Partie Québécois, um, the Quebec Party, les séparatistes, the separatists. And they started throwing bombs, people got killed. Minister Pierre Laporte was blown up, um, political minister, and, and so on. And, and our Prime Minister of all Canada at that time, Pierre Trudeau, imposed martial law. Some of you are old enough maybe to remember some of this. But he imposed martial law and was criticized for it. But he sent in the RCMP and, and uh, all sorts of undercover people. And in four months, he cleaned out the whole Parti Québécois. And then he lifted martial law. So afterwards, he was hailed as a hero. But it stopped the bombings and everything just like that. But that was a sign of the degree of ferment that was going on. And out of this, the premier of that province, Jean Lesage, he passed what came to be called Bill 63 in 1963, which detached education from the Catholic Church. At the time, we barely saw its significance. In retrospect, it was huge. It was huge. It meant you could have a second generation church. It, it took us a while to figure it out. You, you could start having French language Protestant churches, do you see? And uh, then there were other bills that came in. And so when I was growing up, in French Canada, the, um, the majority of the French families I knew had eight children. And priests spoke of la revanche de la crèche, the revenge of the cradle. We'll, we'll beat the English by producing more babies. And eventually, we'll carry everything in the poles. It had the highest birth rate in the Western Hemisphere. In World War II, um, they say, this is guarded, I don't know if it's true or not, but they say that if the Pope had had to evacuate the Vatican, he would have come to Quebec City. And all through the 40s, 50s, Quebec was the most Catholic nation in the world, in, as measured by the fact that they sent out more priests and nun missionaries per capita than any other Catholic nation in the world. So it was a very medieval, um, devout sort of Catholicism. And then in the course of about 25 years, it became one of the most secularized parts of the entire Western world. Quebec now has the highest abortion rate and the lowest birth rate of the entire Western Hemisphere. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily better either. All I'm saying is you begin to catch the measure of the change, the social ferment that was going on. And now you have a whole generation of you know, 50,000 students at l'Université de Montréal. And I, I, of the 50,000 students, I, I, I doubt of 45,000 of them. I, I doubt, I, I doubt of, uh, the, 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 uh, 45,000 of them, I doubt if they've ever opened a Bible or cracked a Bible, held a Bible in their hands. I doubt it. I doubt it. So the only places where Catholicism is in any sense vibrant anymore are within the older population and um, in villages and rural and ignorant and so on. And then God raised up two or three people there was an Armenian, not an Arminian, an Armenian by the name of Jacques Alexanian, who did some of his theological training in Paris and then at Wheaton College. And he became a church planter in French Canada. And for seven years, it was very slow. And then in 1972, things just took off and was largely under his leadership. He was a formidable man. He was sort of, um, am I allowed to say this? The Al Stewart, Phil Jensen of French Canada. <laughs> Do, you know what I mean? A, a bit of an entrepreneur, aggressive, in your face, but clever and gifted at evangelism and shrewd at sussing things out in, in all kinds of ways. And, um, and theologically alert. 
these, these men are not to be um, downplayed because we have a cut down the tall poppy philosophy. They are to be honored because they, they are used by God in all kinds of interesting ways. And um, Quebec, as part of this revolution, had thrown out its educational systems and revamped it so it was much more in line with France. So there's high school, which only takes you to year 11, and then two years of what they call cégep, sort of junior college, and then three years of university after that. It's much more like a French system. And for the first time, they managed to start getting some Bible studies going in the cégeps and in the French universities. As opposed, I mean, I went to McGill, which was at the time an English university. Now it's a bilingual university. But, but when I, I went to McGill, it was 90% it was English. And so it was easy to have a Christian fellowship group, IVCF group there. That's, that's where it was. But l'Université de Montréal didn't have anything like that. There was just, just no way you could get it on the campus. But now, gradually, we're getting these groups on the campus, and especially in the cégep. And, and, and uh, Jacques Alexania was pastoring a church in Sherbrooke. He started one on the Cégep there. And suddenly, you were getting conversion after conversion after conversion after conversion. And suddenly, in two or three years, we had hundreds and then thousands of conversions. And between 1972 and 1980, eight years, we grew, we evangelicals, not just Baptists, but Baptists and Brethren. And now a whole lot of others started coming in when things were really moving. We grew from about 35 churches to about 500 in eight years. Now, that uh, meant a whole lot of different problems. And many of these churches were still only 50, but others were 300 or 400. You could now have a ralliement, a, a, a conference somewhere with 1,000 people, which was simply unheard of when I was growing up, you, you see. But in 1972, my dad was already 61. The leadership was really passing into other hands. Uh, he became, in some ways, the grand old man, ran in his region what was called La Pastoral, where he had a whole lot of young pastors that he was mentoring. And they revered him. But, but in terms of the aggressive leadership of uh, Jacques Alexandre, that was really passing, uh, passing on to, to an, an, another generation. And it was during that time that almost all the leaders of the, of the, of the, the confessional Protestant churches today uh, were converted. Uh, all, almost all of them in, in, in that period. Just as here in Australia, many, many, many of the sort of senior leaders that are running things today were converted during the Billy Graham crusade of 1959, was it? Yeah. And, and, and it, it really was a movement of God that, that brought a lot of people in during that eight-year period. And um, after 1980, things settled down somewhat, um, but the patterns of evangelism changed. Instead of evangelizing Catholics, which was one set of strategies, that, that's what you were confronting, you, you are now ev evangelizing secularists. So, 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 so you, you had to go through another whole rethink, do, do, do you see? But there was also, in the providence of God, a kind of social vacuum, emotional vacuum, religious vacuum, because the reaction against the Catholic Church was so huge that, that the doors were suddenly wide open. You could do all kinds of things you couldn't do before, and, um, and, and, and the, the felt needs for some sort of reality beyond medieval Catholicism were, were, were strong as well. And, and in retrospect, it's clear that that too was God's providential preparation for all of this. I was in England between 72 and 75, and when I came back in 75, so this is right in the middle of this now, this is right in the middle of it, um, I, I took up a post on the west coast of Canada in 1975, but I was instantly put on the French board and was flying back and forth because, because I had the language and I had the training and so on. I remember, in, well, probably 76, um, I flew back to give a couple of weeks of lectures to, to young pastors in, in French Canada. And um, I, I was asked to speak this Wednesday night in a, in a church in Sherbrooke. And um, 
I'd been out of the country you know, for three or four years, and I, I hadn't seen anything like this in French churches. This was a Wednesday night prayer meeting. Uh, I said to the pastor, how many will be here? He said, oh, probably uh, 85 or 90. Well, that was double or triple the size of the churches that I knew in French Canada, you know. I said, how long have I got to speak? He says, oh, I'd never speak less than an hour. These people are so hungry. He says, you're a visitor. You've probably got an hour and a half. So I expounded scripture for an hour and a half. Well, they, they sang songs, first of all. And they weren't the old hymns I knew from Sud les de la Foi, which was our primary hymn book. There were a whole lot of fresh ones. And they were full of theology and vibrancy, Keith Getty type stuff, Rob Smith type stuff, but in French, do you, do you, do you know? And, and they sang for about 30 minutes. And then I preached for an hour and a half. Then the guy got up and he said, um, well, we're very glad that Don Carson is here. Maybe you'd like to ask some questions while he is here. So I answered questions for another hour. And they all had to do with the Bible and theology and spiritual life and formation and growth and how to wrestle with sin and how to evangelize. It was all that, that sort of thing. And, and then um, uh, now it's time to pray. Um, does anybody have any prayer requests? And almost everybody was, was I, I pray for my second cousin twice removed. I've been talking to him about the gospel, and I think he's really close. He's coming under conviction of sin. Pray that the Lord will really convert him. It wasn't my dear Aunt Maud who's 92, and she may have cancer. Pray that, pray that the Lord will heal her. It was none of that kind of stuff at all, you know. It was sort of really vital. And, um, and so after half an hour of these discussions, we all got down on our knees to pray. And then we prayed for another, oh, I don't know, hour and a half. By this time it was midnight, midnight and a half and so on. About one, I left because I was lecturing the next morning at 7.30 and, and I was done in. I don't know when they left. And that was uh, not really an atypical Wednesday. I mean, it was a little longer because I was there, I suppose. Um, but, 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 but that's the way it was. And that went on for depending on the part of Quebec, between two and eight years. And then at the end of that, about 1980, it sort of settled down to sort of more regular things. The church no longer grew so fast. It became a time of training and so on. That became the place and time under the leadership of Jacques Alexania and others, where they founded SEMBEC, Seminaire Baptiste Evangelique du Québec, um, Evangelical Baptist Seminary of Quebec. But it wasn't a seminary as we would think of it quite. It, it was... It, it was basically a theological education by extension uh, type courses. And many of, them, many of them we actually took over from Spanish missionaries, missionaries to Latin America, um, who had developed all kinds of theological education by extension, program learning stuff. Uh, very simple sorts of things. We took it over from, 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 from missionaries to the Latin American countries because, because a lot of that was geared toward evangelizing Catholics. And we still had an awful lot of Catholics around, do you, do you see? So um, we took over that stuff and translated it into French. And, and we started with that, and then we would have one-week modules and six weeks of them having to do things on their own. As these guys were beginning to take on pastoral responsibilities, supervised by regional pastors, we wouldn't dare call them bishops, but that's what they were. And, 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 and it, was, it was full of life and vitality, but extremely dangerous. All these, you, you could go to a church where nobody had been an evangelical Christian for more than 18 months. You know? But on the other hand, that sounds like the New Testament to me. You, you read the book of Acts, and Paul plants churches on the way out, and then on the way back, he, he actually um, appoints elders in every place. Well, he appoints elders in every place for that, that was a two year trip. They, they couldn't have been more than 18 months old in the Lord. That's what we were seeing in Quebec. It was a very first century feel on so many, many, many fronts, you know? But at the same time, very dangerous, as it was in Paul's day. So many volatile, young, enthusiastic people without much training or, or background or history or knowledge or, or anything. 
And so from the years from 1980 on became years of um, a bit of retrenchment. Uh, there was a bit of disaffection, not much, but, but not much more growth. A lot of um, training and so on. Uh, Sembeck became much more established. Uh, those of us who had French came up and would lecture for a week or two at a time. I still go back and lecture in French for a year. I give Sembeck at least a, a, a week, rather, a, a year every, every, every time. And others like Roger Nicole, who had the language, would go up. And then they'd get up people who didn't have a word of French when they, they would do simultaneous translation or line-by-line -line translation. And it was like what happens when I go to China today. Uh, there's a translator for everything, do you, you know? And it was, this was a translator um, into, into French. And, and that's the way education went on. Eventually, they got a, a accreditation at Sembeck for their first degree and so on. And now I've had Sembeck graduates at Trinity doing Master of Divinity and THM. I've had one of them do a PhD at, at Trinity now. And another one came through Dominique Angers at Trinity and then went to France to do a PhD at Strasbourg and is planting a church over in France. And so, so the thing has now become much bigger, and it's third and fourth generation now, and it's, it's much more stable. And the church is actually beginning to grow with fresh round of evangelism again. And now they're trying to cross some other bridges and, and form a kind of French equivalent of the gospel coalition. I mean, there, there's some other things that are going on now, and it's, it's changed its shape quite a bit. That's the history. And for those with ears to hear, you've probably already picked up all kinds of little things on the way. But let me take... Um, a few moments and outline some lessons from the lean years and then some lessons from the high growth years because they're not quite the same lessons. And then I'll throw it up to Q&A. How, how, how much time do we got? What time do we end? I got a way to go. Okay. So let, let me suggest some, um, some lessons from the lean years, therefore, because I suspect that many of you are in situations that feel a lot more like... Um, 1950 to 1972 in Quebec, then 1972 to 1980. And, uh, and, and there are some lessons to learn from those years, uh, too. Number one, you have to begin to view opposition and persecution as a privilege. Indeed, all those who live righteously will suffer persecution because of Christ Jesus. So writes Paul to Timothy. When the first whiff of persecution breaks out in Jerusalem, the apostles rejoice because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Otherwise, you will descend into self-pity, discouragement, despair, despondency. Discouragement and opposition, if you can begin to view it as a badge of privilege, it transforms everything. They treated Jesus this way. Why on earth would you ever think that you should escape? Isn't that what Jesus says in John 15? That doesn't mean we sort of become secret spiritual masochists. Go ahead, hit the other cheek. I really like it. I enjoy the pain. I don't mean that. And yet at the same time, view opposition as a certain kind of badge of honor. Remembering at the same time that the Lord is no man's debtor. And when the awards are meted out on the last day, I don't think it will be the case that all the missionaries that went to South Korea will be more greatly rewarded than all the missionaries that went to Japan. Number two. Pursue evangelism no matter how difficult, find your way around 
Keep thinking of creative ways of gossiping the gospel. You've got to teach the word of God. You will certainly not grow in a difficult situation by mere organizational skill or the right band or whatever. You have to evangelize. Whatever else you do, evangelize. Evangelize or die. At the end of the day, although church planting is more than evangelism, it's never less unless all you're doing is taking a group of people from one church and constituting another church without any growth. I mean, real church planting is evangelizing. And in this connection, I want to say that I've gradually come to the conclusion that even the word evangelist that we sometimes use is a mistake. When Paul writes to Timothy and he says, do the work of an evangelist, we're inclined to think of doing the work of a Billy Graham or a one-on-one -on -one evangelist or talking about the gospel to somebody who's not a Christian. That's what evangelism is. It includes that, but don't forget the gospel, the evangel, the gospel, it's the same word, the evangel in the New Testament is not just the message that tips people in. It's the announcement of the good news of what God has done. It's the big thing under which you put your church planting, under which you put your discipleship, under which you put your missionary training and all, thing, and all that sort of thing. It's not the little category which tips people in and then your missions department takes over, your discipleship department takes over, or your assimilation pastor takes over, or whatever. It's, it's not that. The gospeling is the big category because it applies not only to evangelism as we think of it, that is, so presenting what God has done in Christ Jesus that men and women by God's power are savingly converted, but, 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 but this is the gospel that shapes us, that transforms us. It, it is the gospel we preach to ourselves. We all need it. It is the big category announcing what God has done. So doing the work of the evangelist is simply doing the work of spreading the evangel. It's gospelizing. But, but that's not just gospelizing to outsiders. It's do the work of an evangelist, preach the gospel. Did, did, did you see? That's your whole job. So as in um, 1 Timothy 3 and 4, Paul is told to hold on to the Bible. He's also told in chapter 4 to hold out the Bible to others. In the light of the return of Christ, I charge you, preach the word, be instant in season. And in that context, he says, do the work of an evangelist. That is, do gospelizing. That, preach the gospel. Preach the whole Bible of God focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what you do. And if then you want to see people converted, it must be done in some kind of context or framework where it is touching the lives of unconverted people. Now, that might be done one-on-one -on -one in a coffee shop. You might be able to get some neighbors in. You might be able to get some friends to invite some other friends. I like the alpha style of having people around a, a table and so on. I don't like the, the alpha courses. It's not, in my view, it's not quite the best one out there. I think there are other ways. But the idea of having people around a table and eating and having a nice time and being friends with neighbors and having a brief presentation and a discussion and so on, friendship that leads to the discussion of the word and so on. Find out how to do it. In, in our case, in French Canada, it was door to door. It was some of these letters that we'd circulate to people. Occasionally, we'd get on for a few months before we kicked off on some local radio station. Dad was on and off, I don't know how many times. Uh, each time he got on, he was thrilled to bits, and each time he got off, he was discouraged. But, but, but what, what do you do? You, you keep trying, you know? You keep knocking on doors, starting a Bible club, whatever. But, but, but find out, find out 
um, how you can be busy doing the work of an evangelist in the, in the, in the biblical sense. Number three, um, work on the biblical texts that talk about endurance, perseverance, stamina, and the like. There is a huge amount of biblical material that values steadfastness, endurance, and the like. Um, think of how Paul can multiply his metaphors, for example, in 1 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 2, uh, like an athlete, uh, like a soldier, like a hardworking farmer. Do, 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 do you know? Um, build those graces. Don't, don't keep building up in your mind the image of someone who comes in and immediately is so successful and fruitful that you'll never have fewer than 10,000 people listening to every word that falls from your lovely lips. I mean, it, it, it may be that God will raise up one of you along those lines, but the graces to pursue are not that sort of imagination. The graces to pursue are stamina, courage, faithfulness, long-term endurance. Number four, develop confidence in the doctrine of election. At one point in the French Canada story, um, this was in the late 50s, <coughs> something that happened in another part of the Francophone world had an impact on us. It was the Congo Rebellion in the late 50s. Uh, the Congo was at that point called the Belgian Congo. It was ruled, of course, from Belgium. And in the various uh, bouleversements, the, the the rebellions, the overturnings that transformed Africa into what it became today, with more and more colonial powers being thrown out or walking out cheerfully or whatever the case, um, the Belgian Congo was one of the countries that went through this sort of upheaval. And at this time, when the Belgian Congo eventually became Zaire, then it became the Congo, then it became, you know, it's gone through, it still is going through all kinds of bloody mayhem. But at the time, virtually all the missionaries that were in the Congo left including quite a lot of Americans. Hundreds and hundreds of, of uh, missionaries from all over the world left during this uh, bloody period that ended about 1959. And some of the Americans then, going back to America, were looking around for another part of the Francophone world to go to. At least they had French. It's not Africa, but there's at least some shared culture, at least a shared language, more or less. And so some of them came up into uh, French Canada. And uh, so suddenly in 1959, right in the heart of this depressing period, do, do, do you know, um, we, we suddenly had an influx of, of fresh blood and experience and maturity, missionaries and so on. And there was a certain buzz around the place saying, uh, this is great, you know, carry the load. These people have been at it a long time. They're going to have to learn something of French-Canadian history and culture, but at least they have the language fluently and, 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 and so on. Not one of them stayed longer than six months. Not one. Oh, by this time I was a teenager, and so I knew a great deal. <laughs> and asked my father, you know, what's the matter with these people? Are they all wimps? You, you know, no, no stamina, no guts. You know, I, I had their number, I did. Not like my dad. He was courageous. They are all just a bunch of wimps. My father was the gentlest of men. He said, Don, you're being too harsh. You've got to understand where they're coming from. They've been serving Jesus in a part of the world where... They expect fruit at this point. You know, they've built hospitals. They've seen churches grow. They've established Bible schools. And, and, and so they come here, and they see nothing happening, and they infer, oh, they must have made a mistake. This can't be their call after all because nothing is happening. So I said to him, then why don't you go someplace in the world where you'd see more fruit? Hmm? 
He turned to me and he said, I stay because I believe God has many people in this place. He turned and walked out of the room. I don't think you can really serve faithfully and well and enduringly unless you do believe in the doctrine of election. At the end of the day, you are called to be faithful. But if people are converted, you recognize this is the work of God. And as long as you are convinced that God has people in this place, your job is still to preach until they are found. So develop confidence in the doctrine of election. Number five. Recognize the strange mix of identifiably the supernatural work of God on the one hand, and on the other, God's providential work. Now, now you know, I've spoken in many Catholic uh, countries. Uh, you, you speak in Italy, you speak in Southern Ireland, you speak in Spain, and so on. And everybody wants to know about the French-Canadian movement, you know, because they're thinking, hey, we're Catholic too. We have that same sort of European rootage. Uh, what did you guys do? And, and if, if they can just find out what we did, then maybe you can find the same sort of thing taking place in, in, in Spain. But, but although very few of us analyze the situation very well at the time, when you look back, you realize that... Um, The murder of Pierre Laporte was something that God providentially used. The bomb throwing that shook French Canadian society to the core was something that God used. The martial law imposed by Pierre Elliott Trudeau that cleaned out the violence but left people gasping with despair and emptiness. The courage of Jean Lesage when he passed Bill 63 and tore the educational system away from the Catholic Church. That was shatteringly important for all that we did. Shatteringly important. And none of it was anything that we could do. In other words, all the social dynamics were not things that we could bring about in an attempt to evangelize Spain. It's just not the way it works. But God in his providence brought all these pieces together and then raised up a man like Jacques Alexandre. I mean, usually in these sorts of movements, there really are one or two or three leaders. There are some movements that have come along that are people movements through and through. But usually there are one or two or three leaders that really do stand out in some ways, who have more entrepreneurial vision and lots of energy and lots of courage, and they, they, they bring along a whole lot of people with them. And, and that is, is God's appointment, too. I, I, I am not sure, humanly speaking, if, that, that the Quebec church would have had a, its growth in 1972 to 1980 if, if God hadn't given us Jacques Alexandre and two or three others like him. Now, it's not that there weren't a lot of other good men, but some people are just more endowed than others. Would Redeemer Presbyterian Church be Redeemer Presbyterian Church if it hadn't been for Tim Keller? Well, God could have raised up somebody else. You, you remember what God says um, uh, to, to, to Esther. Who knows whether God has raised you up for such a time as this? And if not, then if you're not faithful, God can easily raise some, somebody else up. I mean, but, but humanly speaking, without God's uh, appointment of certain kinds of leaders in certain kinds of places... 
So, so you look back on it and you see the hand of God working mysteriously through providence to bring about the kinds of social things that left a huge vacuum and even the change in the educational system so that all these cégep were opened up and they, they weren't trained in being anti-Christian. <laughs> we got all these clubs going and all these cégep schools. That's where the whole generation of leadership came from. And they were almost all guys that were being converted. For about 15 years, we had two guys for every girl um, between the age of 20 and 35. You know, in many, many parts of the world, there are far more girls than guys that are converted. In French Canada, it was just the opposite. We, had, we, we were swamped with guys. We didn't, we didn't have enough girls to go around to, to, to marry them off to. Just the opposite, eh? Maybe you'll need to send some Australians up to French Canada. Yeah. <laughs> but it, 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 so I, I was brought up in a context where I never thought of church planting in terms of Sunday schools and women's Bible studies, and then eventually you get around to the men. I was brought up in a context where, of course, you went after the man. I mean, it, was, it was the only thing you did. If you got the man, you got the man, the woman, and the pocketbook. Of course, that's what you do. And, and, and it was the only thing that was working in, in, in that transition period as well, in any case. Do you, do, you, do you see? So somehow, the lessons that you learn in all of this as you look back on them is, is to marvel at God's providential bringing together all the pieces to the point where the gospel is preached, the word of God is being multiplied, and God brings in the right leaders, the right people at the right time, and suddenly you've got a movement, brother. It's wonderful to watch. Now let me say a few things about the rapid growth period. The last point was just uh, transitional. Number one, if you start getting rapid growth, think especially hard and vigorously about patterns of training. Now, of course, even in days of slow growth, you need to think about training and education and evangelism and how to prepare people, yeah, how to prepare people even for slow growth. I mean, uh, that, that's, that's, that's true. But suddenly, you have a whole lot of really, really, really keen converts who don't know much, but love Jesus passionately and want to know more about the Bible, and you've got a huge problem on your hand. There's no, there's no point sort of sitting around thinking, well, well, this is the Spirit's doing. Don't, don't, don't st slow me down with education now. Just, just give me more power, Lord. In fact, I'd be prepared to argue that that was one of the things that went wrong with the Welsh revival in 1904 and 1905. I think there were two big things that went wrong there. Number one, they began to hunger for the experiences rather than for the Lord and the gospel that had given the experiences in the first place. And number two, with only one very small exception, there really was no thought through commitment to theological training in consequence of it. And the thing became more and more taken over by um, extremists. And meanwhile, they, they didn't even begin to attack the liberalism in the theological schools or start another school that was really believable, a tiny little thing that became Barry Bible College, at first of all for lay people at night. There was no vision or direction. But one of the strengths of Jacques Alexandre in this connection, and a handful of others, was their vision to start Sembeck. Now, what theological education will look like in a particular context will depend on the language, the availability of books, the availability of teachers. In some places, there will be residential courses for three or four years. That's what you really want. That's ideal, I'm sure. A whole lot of time to study and think deeply and be exposed to a good library and, and all the rest. But in this kind of situation, um, Modular courses, short-term courses, program learning courses, uh, 
begging money to turn some English books into French and, and so on. This, this was thought through on the fly as, as, as aggressively as was humanly possible, granted the limited resources, to try to make sure that you, 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 you flood things with, with Bible teaching, Bible knowledge, set the bar as high as you can and keep raising it higher for this generation of keen people. There is so much energy in these converts when this sort of movement takes place. The question is, what do you do with it before it just rapidly dissipates? And if I, if I, um, I've been on the edge of two or three really wonderful movements of God. There was a brief movement in Canada, sometimes called the Canadian Revival, when I was pastoring a church in Vancouver in 1970-71. I've been on the edge of a few of them and dropped in in places in the world where I've seen some of them, and I've come to certain conclusions as a result. If the Lord, in his great mercy, ever puts me anywhere near the center of another one, then there are certain steps I will take immediately. Number one, I will do everything in my power to keep the press out. Oh, you can't keep it out, absolutely. Not in this day of blog posts and all the rest. But downplay things, downplay things, downplay things, downplay things. I am persuaded that one of the things that preserved French Canada for as long as it was preserved was the linguistic barrier. People in America and in English Canada didn't have a clue what was going on. They'd hear the odd story, but they, 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 they couldn't sort of fly in to catch the revival because they didn't understand the language. Did, did you see? And that preserved us. And the Toronto blessing, whatever it was, people were flying in to catch the blessing. I mean, God help us. Is, is that what revival is? Did you, did you see? And so suddenly you're making gurus out of people. You're, 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 you're making gurus out of a certain kind of experience. You're all jabbering away about whether or not you're allowed to do this or that. And, and the, the blog posts uh, foment uh, shared ignorance in massive doses. <laughs> do everything you possibly can to keep it out of the press. Don't, don't, don't talk about things like that. Talk about the gospel. Talk about Jesus. Talk about conversions. Talk about Bible study. But, but stop talking about the revival and, and, and discourage any of your friends who know anything at all about what's going on from giving any interviews with uh, the New York Times. Just, just don't do it. it. It will always go wrong. Now, don't misunderstand me. Again, there is a place for certain capable people to have a voice in the media. That, 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 that's right. I'd rather commit uh, um, uh, interaction with the Sydney Morning Herald to the hands of... Uh, Peter Jensen than anybody else in Australia I know. He just is so shrewd. But, but when these things get going in, in revival sorts of proportions, everybody wants to talk to the press and talk about their experiences. You, you know what I mean? And the thing just goes wild as a feeding frenzy. And, and all the motives get corrupted really, really fast. So do what you can to dump down the press. Number two, do what you can, do everything you can to funnel all of this God-given, spirit-empowered energy into Bible study, understanding the gospel, understanding God's holy book, and teaching people to teach it. Because if you don't funnel the energy there, it's going to get funneled somewhere else. Probably toward the passion for experience. Now, hunger for experience of God is not a bad thing, so long as it does not become an end in itself. The, the distinction between a passion for experiencing more of God and a passion for God is very small, but it's significant. 
Because if it's the experience of God that you want, pretty soon you'll do anything to drum up the experience. It's like a kind of drug, whether you've really got God or not. And the fact of the matter is that the experience of God is bound up with his word and the gospel with Jesus. That's where you focus. And maybe then in God's mercy, the experience will go on for a long time. But once you start pursuing just the passion for the passion's sake, start formulating rules for the way prayer meetings must go. They must go till 1 o'clock in the morning. You must have a certain amount of uh, singing. You must have hour and a half exposition. You, you must do, that becomes the test. Then you've got a whole new generation of rules. And pretty soon you've got a self-righteous, merit-based theology. It's no longer the gospel of grace. It's no longer the gospel at all. And, 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 and pretty soon the whole thing is sinking down into, into new kinds of moralism. So if you look around the world today at places that have experienced something of um, rapid growth, a genuine movement of God, let's say Ethiopia 30 years ago, let's say some of the Eastern European states formerly under the USSR where the gospel really did grow massively for a while, Romania, let's say, um, and you ask where are they today? Almost without exception, they're awash in moralism and legalism. Because eventually you start trying to preserve what you've got by rules. And what you lose sight of is grace and the gospel. So if, if I have anything to do with another one of these movements, if the Lord spares me long enough and allows me to live in that kind of context, then besides doing my best to damp down the press, I will do everything in my power to funnel all of the energy towards Bible study, knowledge of the Lord Jesus, following him, discipleship, growth in grace, understanding the gospel, magnifying the gospel, how to teach the gospel, how to evangelize, that, that sort of thing. Do you see? Let the rest of it look after itself. But if you lose the center, you are either going to go into really aberrational forms of almost cultic sorts of uh, e extreme pursuit of phenomena, or you will descend into moralism and legalism. Number three, start carefully, prayerfully, humbly, but start to institutionalize. What I mean by that is when these movements first start going, it's almost never the case. I don't want to say never because my knowledge of church history isn't broad enough to be, to, be, to be sure, but it's almost never the case that, that it's begun by somebody with a big plan. I get students today who come up to me, now I'm old enough and I've had enough birthdays and done enough things. They come up to me at Trinity and they say, how did you plan to get to where you are in your life? And every time I just burst out laughing, every time I hear it, I think it's just a huge joke. I didn't plan anything. Do, 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 do you know? I mean, my, my, I was heading for chemistry, thank you. And then I was heading for church planning and I wasn't going to do anything more than an MDiv, thank you. And then I was planning in, to go to Manchester and landed up in Cambridge. That was almost a mistake. And then I got back to Canada. I had no intention of going to the U.S., absolutely none. Certainly not going to Trinity. I mean, just at point after point after point, the Lord dumps you into things, you know? And, and to talk about it in terms of planning, good grief, it's ridiculous. And, and the reason I got involved in all the international stuff was because the president at Trinity at the time got so ticked off with me about a number of things one particular day that he kicked me off uh, 
uh, four committees. He basically was trying to squeeze me out so I'd go elsewhere. I was depressed for all of two hours. And I thought, oh, this looks like fun. I can do other stuff. And the same week, the director of the World Evangelical Fellowship asked me to lead an international conference. And I, I had 10 glorious years with the World Evangelical Fellowship, making, making, making contacts all over the world that I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't have done if I still had all those four cotton-picking committees, you know? And, 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 but I didn't plan that one either, you, you know? The Lord just sort of dumps you into things. Well, the same is true with Reformation and Revival. I mean, when these things really do begin to, to break, it's not because Jacques Alexandre down there in Sherbrooke was saying, I've got a 10-year plan. It just isn't what happened. It, it just isn't. It just exploded. But what he did do was instantly see that some of all of this needed to be institutionalized. Now, I'm not sure how familiar you are with a particular form of the emerging church movement in North America. But it's really broken up into four or five different tracks, and some of them are more orthodox than others. But as a whole, the emerging church movement prides itself in being anti-institutional. They don't want to institutionalize, for which I'm profoundly thankful, because that means they're going to be dead in 10 years, 20 at the most. But the point is that, 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 that in 20 years, nobody's going to be talking about the emerging church. Absolutely nobody. People will still be talking about the gospel. But if the emerging church really wanted to preserve even what's good in the movement, then they ought to be thinking about institutionalizing. Because the energy of these spirit-empowered movements that first comes along, do you, do you, do you see, um, gives you lots of impetus and, and passion and, 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 and energy to begin with. But, but, but what preserves things, what passes things on to another generation is the first beginnings of institutionalization. Now, you, you say that slowly, you say it humbly, you say it carefully, because, because institutions can themselves become gods. Now everybody's got to go to Bible college before they can preach their first sermon. And so suddenly you've got another kind of legalism. Yeah, that can happen too. But if you don't institutionalize in any sense, you don't preserve much. It becomes a flash in the pan kind of thing. So when you go back to movements like the Evangelical Awakening, they said at the time that Whitfield was by far the greater preacher above John Wesley, but that Wesley was the better organizer. So he developed his classes, and he developed his other groups, including his roving preachers, where they had to begin by reading an assigned list of 50 books and be tested on them. Do you see? What is this but the, the beginning of institutionalization, do you see? So the Wesleyan side developed on the long term into a much more stable and influential force than the Whitfield side, even though as late as uh, 1780, 1790, even after Whitfield was long dead, there were far, far more Calvinist Methodists than there were Wesleyan Methodists, even after Whitfield's death, because as many as remembered, Whitfield were shaped by him. But on the long haul, on the long haul, it was the institutionalizing of Wesley that uh, had the longest, greatest long-term um, impact. One of the great strengths that Jacques Alexandre and others brought uh, was, was, this, was this move towards a cautious institutionalization that produced not only Sembeck but l'Association des Églises and, and other kinds of things, La Pastorale that my father led and so on. Um, th those were all careful, small steps of preserving, institutionalizing, training, passing on. And what that will look like in any particular situation is, is uh, is not always uh, given in advance, but it has to be thought through. Uh, 